All right, and good morning, Rich Point Church. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. You're staying warm this week. It's going to be crazy. It was like 80 degrees a couple days ago, and now it's 38, and there's some forecasts that say it's going to get in the 20s later this week, so I know those watching up north might be a little bit cooler, but... Uh, for us, it's really cold, and I've heard a lot of people getting sick with the fluctuation in temperature, so we're glad that you're here. I want to try this again. I want us to be awake this morning. I know we're all bundled up trying to stay warm, but how is everybody doing this morning? Much better. A lot of energy. I like it. I like it. We need that this morning to keep us warm, but listen, we're glad you're here in the midst of this series we're calling Movement, and we said this last week that most of us, if, if there's any inkling at all uh, for us to, to, to be following Christ or for us to want to experience God, our prayer is often this, or at least we want this to be our prayer. God, I want to see you move in a way that you've never moved before. I want to see something big. I want to, I want to be a part of something that decades from now, they're going to be looking back and writing stories about, man, when God moved back in 2018 and this incredible movement, most of us want to be a part of something like that. If we get to a point where we start praying for something like that, we say, God, I want to see you move. But in order for you to move and have this movement, it has to be with a simple prayer, God, move me. Because if we want to see God perform miracles in, in our area and, and see God move in a powerful way, but he hasn't captured our hearts, then it doesn't begin with us. And so our prayer throughout the series is, God, we want to see you move in a way that it begins with us. That if movement has to begin somewhere, why not us and why not now? And last week, we kind of kicked this thing off, and, and I appreciate the response after the service. I had a lot of people come up and, and say, man, kicking off the year, that's exactly where I'm at, JJ. I don't know how you knew what was on my heart and my mind, but that's exactly where I was at, and I'm glad. And listen, as, as a pastor, when I leave and I have a bunch of people come talk to me like that, I get really excited. But even more than people coming up saying, hey, I really appreciate the message, or it's right where I was at, more than that would be our, our obedience to saying, God, I want to see you move. I want to, I want to just not just leave on Sunday morning and say that was a really good message, but for me to start to apply it throughout the week. And we said this last week. We said there's two things we want to challenge you to be able to do uh, to kind of kick off this series. Number one is get in a group of people and, and read God's word together. We looked at the book of Acts, the movement that took place, and, and the Bible was, was prevalent in all of that. And so get together in groups, use version as an app, and, and just read the Bible together and make that a yearly challenge throughout the year. But then we also said this. We asked you to pray the prayer that's going to be up on the screen. We said, pray this prayer every day, not just once a day, but every time you start to struggle, every time you start to just say, God, I need purpose right now, I need direction, pray this prayer. God, work in me in order that you can work through me. It's on your notes as well if you got notes this morning. God, work in me in order that you can work through me. Now, it begins with God, work in me, because you can't work through me until I start to, to experience your presence, and so, until I start to experience your, 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 your purpose and, and what you're trying to do in my life. But God, once I discover that, use me now as a vehicle to drive your message and your purpose to the world around me. God, work in me first in order that you could work through me. And we said this last week, and, and by the way, if you weren't here last week, that's awesome uh, that, that you're here this morning. Uh, don't feel like, well, I missed something, I'm going to miss out on what the message is about. They do kind of build on each other. I would encourage you to go back and check out our YouTube page and, and, and check out what last week was about. This week is a standalone message about a, a, a different topic, a similar topic. But to give us a little bit of the backdrop of what we talked about last week, we talked about this idea of movements and how a movement ultimately begins with my confession of my complacency. That for most of us, we get, get, just get stuck in a rut. And it can be about any facet of our life. 
We get stuck in a rut when it comes to our relationships. We get stuck in a rut when it comes to our health. Uh, How many start off this year saying, this is it, 2018 is the year that I'm going to start to knock out my, my, my health challenges. I'm going to start exercising. How many set out and made that a goal this year? A few people, one or two. How many have already failed at that goal? Let me, let me put it that way. Like, like we set out, we're like, man, I want to, but I've been stuck in a rut for a while. Well, part of a movement, the beginning of that movement is for me to come up with confession, a confession of my complacency. If I can struggle and get in a rut with my relationships, if I can struggle and get in a rut when it comes to my, my personal health or my finances, I can struggle and get into a rut when it comes to my spirituality. All of us do that. But here's the problem with so many of the things that we struggle with, is that for you and I, we don't like to be open and honest about our struggles. There's a few of us that like to put all of our struggles out on Facebook. That's not healthy either. But for most of us, when we start to struggle, what we do is, is we take whatever that thing is, and we hold that as, as tight to the vest as possible. And we keep that, that closed fist and we think, man, I know that I'm struggling, but if I can just keep that here where no one else can see it and I can hide that from everybody else, then, then maybe everyone else is gonna think that I'm okay and maybe eventually I'll just magically become okay. <clears throat> and so we play our, conf- our struggles close to the vest and we think that somehow that's gonna bring some measure of spiritual health to us and it doesn't. See, what happens when we, try to, when, we, when we fail to confess things is we say, I think I can do this all myself, and there's pride. In the book of Proverbs, the wisest person that ever lived said, pride comes before destruction. And what happens is we think, I'm okay, I'm gonna keep doing this by myself, I'm gonna play this close to my vest, and I hold this thing really, really close, and all it is leading to in my life is, is destruction and, and ruin. And so we said last week for us to get to a spot of confession is to take that out from where we're hiding it from everybody. And confession is simply getting something out in the open. Saying, I'm no longer going to try to hide these things. We have to be careful about who we're confessing to. If we've messed up with someone, we go and confess them. Obviously, we confess those things to God. But it's getting those things out in the open and saying, I'm not going to continue to harbor the ill will that comes with that. I'm not going to continue to harbor the punishment that comes with that. But the confession is getting things out in the open so that I can begin to deal with it. When I start to confess things, there's something that happens. It's freeing. It's, it's liberating. We said, man, before I was living with the weight of all of this stuff on my shoulders, and I wasn't telling anybody. I wasn't even telling my spouse, man, I've been struggling with this. I haven't dealt with this, and I hold it in, and I harbor those ill wills that come with that, and confession is saying, I'm going to get it out in the open, and I'm going to make it clear, and with that starts to become some measure of liberation. So we talked about last week that the idea that uh, that a movement to take place, there's a couple of, for, for the big movement to take place, there's a couple of smaller movements that have to take place. First of all, any big movement has to begin with the movement of the Holy Spirit. It has to be God-ordained, not us. We can't control that. However, there are some things that we can control. We can have a movement in our life away from complacency and a movement in our life towards people who don't know Jesus to say, if I'm really going to become ambitious about my faith, then the best thing I can do is start to show the world around me the love that Jesus has for them. So everything begins with complacency. And we're going to kind of use, throughout the rest of the series, we're going to use our hands and our arms as symbolic of where we're going with this. 
And, and confession brings some measure of freedom and liberty to our life. No longer when I go in, and there's someone that I, maybe it's, it's someone that I've heard, or maybe it's someone that I've been doing life with and I've not been honest with them. What happens is I'm bearing all that weight myself. When I get out in the open and I tell people this is what I'm struggling with, they say, okay, I want to bear that weight with, I want to bear that weight with you. It's not on you alone. And that's why the confession alone can be liberating because we're saying, I no longer have to bear this burden all by myself. I've figured out there's people I can confide in. There's people maybe I've hurt that I have to confess to. And ultimately, i got to go to God and say, God, I apologize. I've messed this thing up. I want to turn this thing over to you. So confession is the beginning of it, but it's, it brings freedom, brings liberty, but it doesn't bring completion. The second thing we're going to talk about this morning, we go from confession to surrender. It's one thing for me, and I know a lot of people that go through this, and, and they struggle. Maybe they struggle with a particular, uh, whatever their struggle is in their life, they struggle with a particular sin or, or whatever it is that's weighing them down, and they confess that sin, and they get it out in the open. They say, hey, I want to be open about this, but they never let that thing go. You see, if confession is me going from here to here, surrender is me going like this and dropping whatever it was that was holding me back previously. It's one thing to confess. It's another thing entirely for me to surrender. If I think confession is liberating, surrender becomes the ultimate of liberation. Surrender is me saying I'm no longer going to be held back. I'm no longer going to have that ill will continue to guide my life. It's not just confessing a sin or confessing something that we're, where we're missing the mark of what God has for us, but it's surrendering, saying, God, I no longer want that to be a part and party to my life. In the book of Job, Job is dealing with a bunch of heavy stuff and, and a bunch of uh, heavy losses. And he has a bunch of friends that come and talk to him. And one of the friends that comes to talk to him is Zophar. And Zophar in Job chapter 11, verse 13 says this. Watch this. If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands towards him. If your heart is where it's supposed to be, you're going to stretch out your hands toward him and say, God, I'm tired of doing things my way. Now, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. We're going to get to that in just a second. But I want you, if you have your notes, take out your notes this morning. At the very top, I want us to, to become involved a little bit in the service. And we're going to do this kind of quickly. We don't have a lot of time to do this. But I want you to think about the first two questions. The first question says this. What were your dreams when you were five years old? Now, I'm not asking for every dream that you had. We'd be here all day. And maybe for some of us, five years old was a long time ago, and we can't even remember what that was like. But what was, what was the one thing, man, as a five-year-old, what was your dream? What was your prayer? God, if I can just do this, my life is going to be complete. For some, that might be hard. For some, you're still holding on saying, man, I wish that thing had come true. For me, I know this one was easy for me. As I've kind of prepared for this, I said, I know the answer to this one already. So when I was five years old, I was absolutely convinced I was supposed to be a major league baseball player. Like, I was sure that's what I was going to be, a catcher, and, and I was set. Like, I played baseball, and I, I, and I was pretty good. I made it through small college ball. But at some point, I become, it became painfully obvious that I didn't have major league talent. But I knew, as a five-year-old, what my dream was. Second question, what are your dreams now? Going into 2018, what are your dreams for this year? Or maybe the next five years. What do those dreams look like? Maybe list out one or two, or at least think of one or two. Man, if I could achieve what I want to achieve this year, or in the next couple of years, 
This is what that is. Once you have those, and I want to be the dream killer this morning. I promise, by the end you'll understand that. I don't want to be the dream killer, but here's the thing I've discovered. Is that at five years old, my dreams were pretty naive. Later on, I, became, I came to realize that that wasn't what I was supposed to do. And those dreams to me now, when I said that, everyone kind of laughed. I find them a little bit laughable. I appreciate you laughing at me. But it's every bit as much possible that the dream that I mentioned for 2018, 10 years from now, those things might be just laughable. We don't know. Maybe the things are supposed to be realized. Maybe they're not. But I want to talk today about this idea of, of surrender and what surrender looks like and, and why we surrender these things. Because at some point, like Zophar talking to his friend Job, he says, listen, at some point if our hearts are right, we extend our hands out and we say, God, I, I want you to have your way. I'm tired of doing things my way. God, I want you to have your way in all of this. And that's why when we gather together, and, and I know I, I used to, when I first started going to church, and I grew up in a bunch of different religious traditions, and I was trying to figure it all out, and, and, and I went to some churches where people were very expressive, and they put their hands out, and I remember going up, like, kind of in, in a church where that wasn't custom, and I kind of watched that, and I'm like, why do they do that? I don't understand that. That's kind of weird to me, and, and, and then I went to a church where, and I kid you not, if you did that at all, Everyone viewed you peculiarly, and they thought that, why would you do that? That's all this stuff. There's very rigid traditions that they had. And then I became a part of a church that they experienced more freedom. And, and I always kind of wondered, what is that about? Why is it? Even as my heart started saying, man, I want to worship that way, and I started to respond that way, I said, what is that all about? And, and in reality, all that is when people lift up their hands and, and they respond in some way is saying, God, I am giving the sign of surrender. God, I'm tired of doing things my way, and I'm giving my life and my purpose, my passions, all over to you. And so some people choose to respond, and I love that when we respond and say, God, I want to worship you with the freedom that I didn't feel before. And in fact, I think it's okay to laugh when we come to church. I think that's a healthy thing. And there's this Christian comedian out right now that has a whole bit on hand-raising in church they're actually going to watch right now. Now, how many people can identify with that? It's like, like I want to, but I don't know how to do all that stuff. And, and man, you know, there's, there's freedom when we get this picture that, that what God wants, it's not about raising hands or, or any of that stuff. That can be a tool to use, but God wants our hearts to come to him in absolute surrender. And so we move from some point in this discussion of saying, God, I want to see you move. But I'll move to a spot where I move from simply confessing something to you or to other people to the point that I want to surrender what it was that I had to confess in the first place. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 10 to be exact. Mark chapter 10. We're going to read part of the story, comment on a little bit, and then finish it up. But Mark chapter 10, beginning of verse 17, Jesus here is, is dealing with a young man. He's, he's a, a rich man. He has... Uh, quite a bit of, of money, quite a bit of resources. And, and because of that, he loves the stuff that he has. And so Mark 10, it's, it's the rich young man or the rich young ruler. In Mark 10, he comes up to Jesus and he says, and this is what happens. As he's setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him. And he asked him this. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' response is, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So Jesus comes, and by the way, Jesus is fully God. It's not the point of what he's trying to say here. It's that this, this rich young ruler has come to him, 
And he's, he's not fully realized. He believes Jesus is a good teacher. And so he comes up to Jesus, you're a good teacher. And he says, well, why do you call me good if you don't believe that I'm God? Only God is good. And so therefore, you, you don't even know how right you are. You've come up to the Son of God. You've come up to God himself, and you've called him good, which is accurate. But you don't even realize it. And I want us to see this because we're going to become critical of his remarks in just a little bit. This rich young ruler, he has everything. He has all of the possessions that you could possibly have. And so later on when Jesus says, well, here's what you have to do, and he kind of finds this whole thing kind of laughable when he leaves, understand that even though he had everything he thought he could want, even though he had all the earthly possessions that he thought that he could want, he still finds his life is lacking. He still finds, even though I thought this is going to bring me happiness and, and fulfillment, I've come and I've, I've enjoyed all of these things, and yet I still am found wanting something else. And so he comes up and he, he comes to Jesus, he asks this question. Jesus says, no one is good except for God. And then he says this, okay, you want to know how to inherit eternal life? And he starts to give out some of the commands that God had in the Old Testament, prior to Jesus coming, they thought the commands were going to bring some measure of, of eternal life or obey these laws. You're going to get rewarded because of that. So Jesus says, okay, if, if you think you can do it yourself, because his question had be, begun, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We can't do anything. Jesus does it all for us. But he turns to the rich young man and says, okay, if it's all about you, if you think you do it yourself, he says, okay, do this. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Now I want us to notice this. We lay out the Ten Commandments that are given in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. Jesus begins with the fifth command, and he covers all of the horizontal commands. He covers every one of the commands that has to do with how we relate to other people. But in none of that does he cover the first four commands, which have the vertical aspect to them. He doesn't talk about the idea that we're supposed to honor God, we're supposed to honor the Sabbath, or any of those things. He says, okay, if you think it's all about you and your interpersonal relationships, then go and do all of these things. Go in and make sure, make sure you're honoring the, the other six commands. He says, make sure that you don't murder, make sure you don't commit adultery, make sure you don't steal, make sure you don't bear fault, defraud, or, or make sure you're honoring your father and mother. He says, make sure you do all of these things. The rich young man, thinking he has it all together, verse 20 says this, and he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, in other places, Jesus actually breaks down those commands, and we realize that even though we haven't murdered other people, which I hopefully we haven't done that. If there's hatred in our heart, it's just like murder. So it's not that we're actually honoring the commands, but Jesus is having this honest conversation with this rich young ruler, and he says, he says, okay, here's what you're supposed to do, and here's how you're supposed to relate to each other. And the rich young ruler says, well, okay, from the time I was a teenager, from the time I was a child, I took care of all of those things. I did all of those things. Watch Jesus' response here. I love this. In verse 21, it says, in Jesus Looking at him, what's the next two words? Loved him. Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. I read that. I believe that every word that we have in Scripture is divinely inspired by God. God put it there for a reason. And I read that, and, and, and I'm like, you didn't even have to qualify that. 
We know that Jesus is love, and so I would have expected Jesus to love him. So I have to ask the question, why in the middle of that whole statement does it have to say Jesus looking at him loved him? But I get this picture of Jesus looking at this guy and says, okay, if you think it's about you, then go and take care of the other six commands. And this guy, full of this brazen attitude, says, okay, Jesus, I've done all that. And it's almost like a parent looking at his child, who when you know the child is being really, really naive, you look at them with this look of love, like, oh, <laughs> oh, you little child. <laughs> like, like, you think you've done all of those things. So Jesus looks at him. He says, okay, if you think you've done all of those things, if you think that you could obey the command, obey the law. See, the law was given in the Old Testament to point out the fact that none of us could do it on our own. The law was given for us all to realize, man, we're all broken and we're all desperately in need of a Savior. The law was given simply to point all of us to our need for a Savior to come in our place. So the rich young ruler says, but, but not me. I have it all figured out. You see, I've, I've gone to religious school, and I've obeyed all the commands. Jesus, you don't understand. I've done all that. Does that mean that on my merit, I've, I've earned eternal life? So Jesus looks at him, and he loves him. And he says to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. He says, okay, if you think you've honored the other six commands, if you think you actually love other people, because ultimately this was a command to love the people around us. He says, okay, if you think you've done all those things, go and sell all that you have and give it to them and come follow me. And then it says this, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. I remember as a young kid reading this for the first time. And just being really troubled by this passage, thinking, does that mean that really to follow Jesus, that, that I can't have any possessions, i got to go sell everything to follow him? Like, is that the only way to salvation? Because for any one of us, we look at that and say, man, that's a, that's a steep price. I don't know if I could do all of that. That's pretty drastic. Like, if we actually ever did that, the world would look at us and say, like, are you a cult? Like, what, what is that about? Like, people just, and, and, but that wasn't Jesus' point at all. Jesus was saying you have to love God more than you love your stuff. And if you thought salvation was about what you did, then you'd have to be the most sacrificial person the world's ever seen to give up everything because in the end, it's not about us at all. Salvation isn't about us. It's about what Jesus did in our place, in our stead. He died for us because you'd realize we'd all fall short of God's glory in this, in this whole race that we call life. But this rich young man comes, his question begins, what must I do? What can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, okay, if you think it's about you, then go and do this. And he says, I can't do that. I have a lot of stuff. And he walks away discouraged, and he says, man, I thought I had to figure it out, and, and I don't. And I'm not willing to do that. That's too high, high a price. It's too big a sacrifice. And he leaves. See, if the question had been different, and the rich young man said, Jesus, what is eternal life about? The, question would have, the answer to that question would have been much different as well. 
But it's not. His question is about what must I do? So Jesus gives him an honest answer, and he doesn't like it. And yet in the midst of that honest answer, it's not about us, and Jesus doesn't call all of us to go and to sell everything and give to the poor and go and follow him. That's not the point of this. But in that, there is a central truth about this idea of surrender. That at some point, if I really want to be obedient to Christ, at some point I have to say, God, I'm tired of fighting the, the, way, the battle the way that I want to fight it. I'm tired of doing things my way. And so I'm going to follow you now. I'm going to listen to what you have for me. And so if you're taking notes, we'll go through these real quickly. What do we have to surrender? If we're really going to want to see God move in our life, what are the four things that we have to see surrendered in our life? Uh, the first three are pretty simple. We're going to go through this pretty quickly. We'll spend more time on the last one. But the first thing we have to surrender is we have to surrender our sin. We surrender our sin. We don't want to spend too much time on this one. We dealt with this a uh, little bit more on a global scale last week. But some of us make and continue to make the same bad choices in our life. And we think, well, I keep making these mistakes. I want to see God move. We, like we talked about last week, we say, I've made a mess out of life, but somehow I want God to intervene and to bless my mess, and it simply doesn't work that way. If we want to see God move in our life, we pray for him, say, God, I want to see a fresh move of your spirit in my life. I want to move out of the rut of my life. But at some point, I have to stop making the same bad choices. I have to stop being selfish about those things and remove those things from my life. The second thing, and this one is really, really important, we have to surrender our grudges. For some of us, we've never let go of a past hurt. And because of that, we walk around with a chip on our shoulder. We walk around and someone in the past hurt us in a really, really extreme way. And so now I walk around with a chip on my shoulder. And I expect everybody else in my life to treat me the same way. So I put up barriers. I don't be real. I don't have transparent relationships. And, and because of that, I'm allowing those past hurts to affect my present relationships. And I'm missing out on life because of that. Some of you know right now that you're walking in a past grudge. And maybe your past grudge had to do with a family relationship, and so because of that, the rest of your family struggles. For some of you, the, the, the past hurt dealt with a coworker, and because of that, you're less likely to give your all at work because of a past hurt, and it's only hurting you. For some, your past hurt had to do with a church experience. And so because of that, it's like, I don't really want to go get involved, I want to put up walls, because the past hurt is affecting our present relationship. The best thing we can do is say, God, I've confessed those grudges, but it's time for me to let those grudges go. Those can no longer be a part of who I am. The third one, we have to surrender our grief. Man, this is a tough one because we go through seasons where life gets really, really hard. And for a lot of people, that was last year. When we go through a season where, where grief starts to overwhelm us. In Psalm 30, verse 5, it says this. Weeping may last for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Weeping may last for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. For some of us, we get stuck in that cycle of, of grieving, of weeping, and we never get past that. I've, ex I've experienced that where people held on to grieve for decades, and they stopped living their life. Weeping is supposed to be there. The Bible says there's a time for us to grieve, and there's a time for us to rejoice, we're supposed to go through, scientists have looked at the seven stages of grieving and said, ultimately, at the other side, we either come out with hope or we come out with bitterness. And I've seen good people 
go through the seven stages of grieving, and some good people come out on the other side saying, man, I didn't like this season of my life. I don't like the hurt that accompanies it, but I come out on the other side saying, I wanna use the hurt that I went through to provide hope to other people going through the exact same situation, or they came through the same situation saying, I'm so mad at God for what happened that I leave that process with a bitterness. There's almost nothing in between. We either go through seasons of grief, ending it with a season of bitterness, or ending it with a response of hope. We surrender our grief saying, God, I want to hold on to this for a season. I'm supposed to hold on to this for a season, but eventually I need to let that grief go and continue to move on. Final one, I want to talk about this one for a while. We surrender our dreams. We began by writing down some dreams. And listen, I want to let you know there's nothing wrong with dreaming. At the beginning of this year, I said, all right, I, I want to be serious about this. I want, to, I want to write down just some random dreams. And so I sat down one night, and I just kind of had been praying about this for a while, and I sat down and said, what are, what are some things that I want to see accomplished this year? And some of those were on a personal scale. Some of those things were surprising to me. If I, and I haven't shared them with anybody. If I shared them with my family, they'd be like, are, are you serious about that? I'm like, yeah, I don't know why. Something that I want to I look into this year. Some were on a church scale, trying to figure out what that looks like for us as a church. Some really big things we'll actually talk about in status in a couple of weeks. So I'm not against dreaming. I think that we should dream. But the problem is that there are a few things in life that I want to hold on to with a closed fist. There are a few things in life, and the only thing, and the older I become, the, the, the more limited those things are. But the things that I hold on to with a closed fist are the things that God has said, this is what you're for sure supposed to do. One of the things I'm going to hold on to with a closed fist is I said, I'm not going to abandon my family. That's never something I'm going to surrender. I'm not going to abandon my faith. That's never something I'm going to surrender. But outside of a few things that God has given us, everything else, I say, God, I want to give this over to you. It's not that I want to give those things up, but God, I want to say, this might not be your best for my life. And if it's not, then I'm tired of holding it really, like right here with a closed fist. Instead, God, I'm holding it out here with an open hand. I'm going to surrender it to you. And here's why most of us are afraid of that. Here's why most of us fear that. It's because we have this perception that God is a dream killer. Like, I have these big things I want to accomplish, and, and God doesn't want me to be happy. He doesn't want me to enjoy all these things. And that's a lie the enemy's been feeding us for a long time. And we think, well, God must be a joy killer. He doesn't want us to do all these fun things. And that's not the case at all. In fact, I believe God is a dream giver. I believe that God gives breath to our dreams. But so those dreams have to be God-ordained, not J.G.-ordained. I want us to get this picture. I want us to understand this. When I surrender my dreams, I'm not giving them up. I'm giving them over. When I surrender my dreams, I'm not giving up on my dreams. I'm not saying, well, I want to accomplish all these things, but that must not be what God wants because I don't know that yet. When I sit down at the beginning of the year and I wrote down, God, here's the things I'd love to discover. I believe that as I sat down and prayed through those things, that God was actually giving breath to those dreams. God was saying, yes, I want you to, to, to start to work towards those things. And so when I surrender my dreams, I'm saying, God, I'm not sure these are your dreams or not. 
And so because of that, I'm not going to hold on to them with a closed fist because I found myself that when I get in trouble, it's because I say, God, I want you to bless, but here's what I want you to bless, and I'm not letting go of that. And God says, hold that dream with an open hand. Still might happen. You're not giving that dream up. You're giving it over. Continuing on in the story of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler walks away. He's distraught by this. He doesn't like the idea that Jesus says, you have to surrender everything that you have. So Jesus says in verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, How difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them, and this kind of brings the whole message of the rich young ruler to a head. He says, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. He says, no one who's ever sacrificed, no one who's ever really surrendered things hasn't found on the other side. To see, all those things have been surrendered. All those things that have been given up have been multiplied exponentially, and they've received so much more in the outcome than they ever anticipated. One of the prayers that we read in Scripture is this prayer that, God, I want you to do exceedingly abundantly above all that I could ask or think. In other words, God, my vision is this big, but God, yours is this big. And so I want us to understand this as we get ready to close out. I want us to understand this idea. Sometimes God says no, not because our dream is too big, but because it's too small. Sometimes we set out the beginning of 2018, and we say, God, if I could just have this, I'd be complete, my life would be fulfilled. Like, this is my vision, and God says, no, it's not. Like, you think it is, it's your vision, it's not my vision. And I'm saying no to that vision, not because it's too big. I think that's where we get off base. We think, well, I was dreaming all these things, and I wasn't able to accomplish them. It must be because God thinks I'm not big enough to handle that dream, or that dream's too big for me. But sometimes God says no, not because your dream is too big, but because it's too small. See, when I was five years old, I thought, I want to be a major league baseball player. And still there's days I think that'd be really, really cool. But God says, JJ, that wasn't my dream for you. That wasn't my plan for you. Going into this year, I want us to dream big. But I want to be about what God has for us. God, I want to see you move. I want to surrender my will. I want to surrender my way of doing things. I've already confessed my sin over. I've given that up to you. And God, if I'm going to pray this prayer, 
that I want you to work in me in order that you could work through me. I have to abandon my dreams. I have to surrender those over to you and say, God, if, if that's what you want, I'm willing to do those things. I would love to do those things. I don't think there's anything wrong with praying for those things. But at some point I say, God, I want to see you work. And I'm tired of me doing things my way and me trying to attach my prayers to what I'm doing. Saying, God, bless me where I'm at. Instead, I say, God, where are you moving? And God, as you're moving, I want to join with where you're at. Because God, I want to see this mighty movement of God take place in my lifetime. And it's not going to happen if I do things my way. And so God, I confess these things to you. I get it out in the open and I surrender those things to you because I, I don't want to have control of my life. I want to yield control of my life to you. Let's pray together. God, even as we gather this morning, uh, even as maybe we've prayed this prayer throughout the week that God wants you to work in us in order that you can work through us. God, even as we've done all of those things, my fear is that there's confession, but we have this, this natural tendency to go back to the way things used to be. And so, God, I would pray right now in our hearts you'd allow us to have a, a position not just of confession, of, of total transparency in our life, but that could also be a, the ability for us to surrender those things to you. God, whatever people are dealing with this morning, uh, maybe it's they're dealing with uh, sin that's in their life they need to get rid of. God, I pray that there's surrender in their life. They get rid of that sin forever. If there's grudges they're holding on to that don't allow them to live life the way they're supposed to live, God, I pray that there's absolute surrender of those grudges. If there's grief they've never been able to get past and they've gone through this season where the grief is supposed to be prevalent, God, I pray for uh, them to be able to abandon and surrender those, those, those griefs and, and the, stuff they dealt, the, the stuff they dealt with. And God, ultimately, if there's dreams that we hold on to that are not of you, God, I pray that we get to a spot in our life where absolute surrender is called upon. God, give us a heart to do that, to say we want to see you move. We want to abandon our ideas and our principles and our dreams to be able to surrender what you have for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray.